and welcome to the JLA Cast, a podcast in which we revisit Grant Morrison's legendary run on JLA, arguably the greatest superhero comic ever written, one issue at a time. My name's John, and I'm the writer and creator of Afterlife Inc. And I'm PJ, and I'm the writer of the graphic novel adaptation of Steve Jackson's The Trolltooth Wars. Did you forget which podcast you were introducing there, John? No, it was meant to be a dramatic pause. Um, I realise that, and I have the text up in front of me. You know, like because I because I worry <laughs> I worry about this. Um, I worry about my failing my failing brain. Um, but no, it was meant to be like oh, there's a there's a oh oh anticipation excitement. What podcast is it? Um, I realise that probably doesn't come across in an in an audio medium. But there we go. It, it did sound more unsure than uh, than suspense. <laughs> um, there may have been an element of uncertainty there. So I, I do I do really you know doubt myself sometimes. Um, but but we're back. We're back again. We are. Hello. Um, with um, well, not necessarily a bold new era for the series, but um, certainly a change. This is the the first of our non Morrison issues. Uh, except for when we looked at Midsummer's Nightmare. True, although a pedant, but not me, would say that was prior to the Morrison series. It wasn't part of the main run. But we looked at it after we'd looked at some Morrison issues. That's true. Again, a pedant, PJ. Uh, uh, someone who cared about the minutiae of that might might think differently. But no, no, it's <laughs> all is well. Um but we do have some things to discuss before we dive into uh, the strange case of Dr. Julian September. Yes, which is a story I, I, I love and I'm very glad we're revisiting. But yeah, we do have some other things that, that need to be talked about for your audio entertainment. The way you say it, it's like that does it does bring to mind like uh, some unpleasantness that we need to we need to air. It's like <laughs> now the, it has we don't want to discuss it, but it has to be discussed if we're going to continue in a professional manner. No, don't worry, we're not discussing anything to do with John Byrne. It's fine. Um, but uh, PJ, do, did you want to take us on a literary diversion first? Because you've been you've been doing some some additional reading and research. I have, yeah. Uh, a few weeks ago, and I, I do apologise, I can't remember which listener it is that pointed it out to us, but we were shown a miniseries that neither of us were aware of called JLA Paradise Lost, which basically tells the story of Zauriel in between the two-part Angel story and his joining the League in JLA 16. Yeah, we we were completely ignorant of, of this, Um because obviously there's that big uh, setup, well, kind of a big setup at the end of. Hang on, I've got my spreadsheet here. I can remember the exact thing. He can, can he? Um, uh, heaven, heaven on earth, uh, issue seven. Yeah, yeah the the where uh, Zoriel, uh, Zariel, uh, kind of knocks on the door of, I guess, uh, a woman he's been kind of uh, admiring. It's a charitable way of saying it from afar, from heaven. And says that he loves her. And then that is just left hanging. Yeah, and then the next time we see him, he's just joining the league, no mention of this woman, and he's got a cool new look. Uh yeah, and and I'd always kind of I I knew in the back of my head, PJ, that at this period of time, 
uh, DC did a few events, or maybe fewer, which were kind of themed around heaven and hell. Was there not? Uh, Neron came back and um, a load of villains sold their souls to him and gained new powers in return. Wasn't that a big thing? I believe so, yes. I think that was just before Morrison's JLA. And then there was a lot later on in it as well. Quite towards the end, you have um, Day of Judgment, which was the uh, big biblical one, which ends with Hal Jordan becoming the Spectre. Right. And I kind of assumed, again, not really knowing the chronology or the time, the timing of those events, I kind of assumed that somehow Zoriel's whole deal was included in those, but I guess I assumed incorrectly. Zoriel definitely takes a prominent role in certain parts of Day of Judgment. Day of Judgment was one of those weird ones where I think it was a five-part miniseries, but it's something that DC did and Marvel have done a lot as well where you get the main mini series which tells the story but the story feels incomplete unless you read every single tie in some of which are terrible and it does every single book that DC put out over a couple of months have at least one tie in to the story right um, right and i think i did at one point own every single tie in to day of judgment was it ever collected i don't knowledge? know if I'm honest, mm. I really don't know. I'm guessing if it was, though, it would have just been a trade featuring the main mini and maybe a couple of other parts here and there. I don't think... There's very few of those crossovers where they've collected everything, to my knowledge. Yeah. Uh, I think Marvel tried it a couple of times, did a couple of omnibus editions. I want to say there was one of Civil War they tried to do, but I don't think they finished it because... It would have been l so many books, and, and I don't you, think people bought it. But and you had the, um, but certainly done like the. Have they not done the onslaught saga as like um, three oversized trades? They of. have onslaught was a bit different though because that only had the two one shots, and then everything else was told in the actual books. It didn't have a mini series. Oh, that's true. Yeah, because I remember. Yeah, I remember because at that time, uh, Onslaught was in a weird way um, uh, mine and my brother's introduction to modern day X-Men comics, having really only read, uh, watched the, the cartoon as uh, as kids. Because it, um, it was collected in the UK uh, Panini mm -hmm. Collector's Editions reprints. And again, it's a very um, strange time to be joining the X-Men. But we... We read the whole saga through those collected editions and I have to say, kind of enjoyed it. Um, and uh, the only one we missed was one issue we could never find and that was when the Avengers turned up. Ah, uh, okay. See, I, I read... I read I, I, when I first read it, it's because my local news agents randomly would stock the odd American comic and they would get uncanny x-men and x-men so i read all those chapters of onslaught but i didn't read the mini the the one shots that started and ended it and i didn't read any of the other tie-ins and you can sort of get the basics of the story through that but then i also then reread it in the panini editions and that included the onslaught x-men and onslaught marvel universe one shots plus i think a couple of issues of fantastic four cable incredible hulk and mm. avengers that tied in yes but at, yeah 
but at the same time, you also had the Spider-Man tie-ins, where it which was just Spider-Man, Ben Riley at the time, fighting some Sentinels in New York. It didn't really have any impact on the main story at all, but they did put those in the Panini Spider-Man book. And then I know there were other books that had similar, like there was an issue of Iron Man, an issue of Thor, an issue of Punisher that was basically set during the events of Onslaught, but had no real bearing on the story. And those are then included in those trades, the, uh, the mm. complete Onslaught edition. Well, I guess uh, for the benefit of any um, uh, non-UK listeners or anyone who wasn't familiar with the, the kind of Panini collector's editions, um, because aside from comic shops, which were always kind of few and far between in the UK. Certainly uh, back in the 90s, there oh, were certainly yeah, I, as many as there are now. We had, because I, I grew up um, in uh, Gloucester, and we had a little shop called collector's choice i want to say which was uh kind of like part uh comic shop and part kind of um weed paraphernalia kind of <laughs> shop shall we say and Sounds familiar. Uh, yeah and they'd have like again these uh, the way i thought of them like these weird american comics you know it's like oh i recognize him from the cartoon that's iron man but what's going on i don't understand any of this but then, uh, obviously, you had W.H. Smith's, which still is a, well, kind of like an everything shop, for lack of a better word. Um, is that fair? Like, it's technically like a news agent, but it's like a big chain? Yeah, I feel like W.H. Smith's is sort of, it's it's a jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none kind of thing. Like I used to work in WH Smith's after I worked in Waterstones. I was in the book department in WH Smith's and I do remember one time a customer saying, Do you have this book? And I just went, No, we don't, I'm afraid. <laughs> and they went, Oh, and I said, Try Waterstones. They've almost certainly got it. And one of my colleagues came over to me and went, You can't recommend Waterstones working here. And I just went, Well they are a much better bookshop. They they are a much better book like an objectively better bookshop. Yeah, exactly. So WH Smith's you can get like the popular books and you can probably get them for a good price they, they do some quite good deals in there as well but if you really want to go properly book shopping that's not where you're gonna go and also i but i guess for kind of novel novelty in a way of something like wh smith's is that uh if you wanted a magazine or heaven forbid a comic mm. co- comic air quotes um that was probably the place to go because even yeah. now uh, in in Cheltenham where I live, we've got um, a WH Smiths. Every town has a WH Smiths. Yeah. yeah, and we just have this massive wall of magazines. Everything from oh, I don't know, like the the celebrity mags like Hello or OK to like Angling Weekly or <laughs> um, you know uh, or Car Fanciers Monthly, that sort of thing. Like really kind of niche magazines. Mm-hmm. And you'd have these panini, uh, not the sandwich for company, uh, kind of collected collector's editions, quote unquote, which were reprints of American comics, often like three to five years behind, if that makes sense. When they started, I think they were about five years behind because the history of those is quite interesting, actually, because it starts out with a big... A4 book called Exploits of Spider-Man. <laughs> really? Uh, which uh, was certainly reprinted Maximum Carnage. Um, and this was before, I think, maybe just before the 90s Spider-Man series started. Exploits of Spider-Man. Wow, that's wild. 
Yeah, and that would print four issues at a time uh, and was only about £1.20, £1.50 maybe Mm. um, because it was on cheaper paper stock. And then that got stopped and they launched Essential X-Men and Astonishing Spider-Man, which were more US size but had a cardstock cover but were more expensive and only printed three issues each. And they'd often have a redrawn cover, wouldn't they? At first, they would get their own artists to draw their own versions of the covers, some of which were really good, some of which not so, not so much. Good. Not so good, yeah, yeah. And then, I think it was about two years into those that they launched their third book, Wolverine Unleashed. And then It was always it- a weird one to me. I, just, I found it odd that when you, when you consider how hard it was to get hold of comics, and, and certainly DC comics were practically non-existent in the UK, um, and then for Marvel to have this tiny little foothold and to go, okay, wh- what are we going to put on a on a pedestal? Spider-Man, X-Men, and then a separate Wolverine one? That always struck me as a little odd. Well, that was an odd one, because it was... I think this was before... Before Wolverine Unleashed changed, because it did did change. And obviously, this was, the X-Men movies came out as well, which really helped solidify that. But they launched then, before they'd even done Onslaught, they launched Heroes Reborn. Oh, God. Yeah, because the, the chronology was all out of place, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. And that reprinted Fantastic Four and Iron Man, but the Heroes Reborn stories. And around that time, they would also then start, I think so that they didn't catch up to the US books. Each one would usually have two modern comics and then they'd reprint a classic issue from mm. the, like the 60s or 70s or something as well but and then wolverine unleashed became wolverine and gambit because briefly gambit was incredibly popular but then they ran out of gambit solo stories and then it became wolverine and deadpool mm. then they launched their batman book after they'd been able to print jla avengers in because heroes reborn basically became avengers united uh well yeah because it got that was weird, wasn't it? Because I, I, my, the first, uh, as I would call it, adult comic I ever owned was Heroes Heroes Reborn issue 14, I want to <laughs> say. I remember it vividly. It was part two of the Galactus storyline. Yep. It was one of the weirdest things I'd ever read, certainly at that time in my life, probably even now. Um and it introduced so many characters I'd never heard of before, like Vision, Scarlet Witch, Ant-Man, uh, who's this Thor character. I think I vaguely remember him from a Incredible Hulk movie or something like that. And it blew my mind. Like, I, I, I loved it. And uh, But then, of course, that morphed... Then that, that did the Heroes Return storyline. Yeah, so it... it was originally a smaller comic. It would only reprint two issues, the Iron Man and Fantastic Four ones. But then after the Galactus story, it increased in size to match the others. It was still called Marvel Heroes Reborn, but it was reprinting the Heroes Return storylines from Fantastic Four and Iron Man. And it started printing the Incredible Hulk from ahead of where Essential X-Men <laughs> and Astonishing Spider-Man were, but behind the Iron Man and Fantastic Four yeah, stories that it was, was... printing. That was like the tail end of Peter David's run. Yeah. And I have to say, I, I really liked, because uh, it was, oh, it was one of the Kuberts. I was getting confused. Adam. Andy or, Adam. Was it Adam? Adam Kubert, yeah. Right. I loved it. I, it I was really great. Li- I really liked that run. Um, yeah. And then, it, as you say, like it, it, they realized they were basically printing stories. 
Oh yeah, sorry, no, PJ, I'm I'm losing my brain. I'm losing my mind now because yeah, it was um, Hulk, Fantastic Four, and Iron Man for a long time. Is that correct? Yes, and then people weren't enjoying the Hulk stories for whatever reason, so they ditched the Hulk and brought in the Avengers starting again from the beginning of Heroes Return, but then three issues into the Avengers joining the book, Heroes Reborn gets cancelled and replaced with Avengers United, and they just start printing Avengers stories, but from issue four in issue one. Yes. <laughs> and that was, and then they just started serialising the Busick-Perez run. Yes, exactly. But then they printed, they got the rights to reprint in Avengers United, JLA Avengers... Mm, which led to Panini doing Batman Legends. So they were then they got the rights to do DC and did Batman, but only for about two years before they lost the DC rights, which went to Titan, who then started putting out their own collector's editions as well. And this is about when I checked out of the UK collector's editions yeah. scene. I stopped buying them, but I know that these days you've got loads of Marvel ones and now Titan are doing like their own they've got three or four DC books. They do one that reprints the Doctor Who comics as well and and yeah, it's still quite a big market, I gather. It was so it was so strange and it completely uh again, we you know, we we were just talking about like uh we we've talked about, you know, um keeping track of storylines or if there's a big event and all the tie-in comics and how hard it is mm. if you are a collector of you know, floppies or monthlies or, you know, traditional American comics, how hard it, is, it can be to keep track of those stories. Um, never experienced that because the good editors at Panini would give you this kind of curated, um, uh, like a kind of um, dining experience of the key issues you needed to be aware of. So for me, like a monthly comic was this thick... Uh, this thicker book, as you say, with Carbog's uh, cover, um, with, with with the equivalent of three issues in it. it, it felt like such value for money. I think they cost about f- five pounds now, four ninety nine, maybe a little, maybe a little more. But certainly when I started buying them, they were one ninety nine, and they'd sometimes come with free trading cards. Oh, I know it was outrageous. Uh, like it, that's what got me into comics, and that's what kind yeah. of made me, uh, for lack of any alternatives, a Marvel man. For so long, yeah, likewise, and it, and it wasn't until I dis- I discovered the JLA trades, which we're talking about now, um, which uh, opened my mind to DC. Like um, I loved the comics I was reading in Heroes Reborn and Avengers Assemble, or it went through a few different title changes. Um, you know, and Busick, like Kurt Busick, uh, his Iron Man. Uh, his Avengers, uh, Claremont's run on Fantastic Four, uh, Peter David on the Hulk. Those were my kind of idea mm-hmm. of what like modern comics were. And then discovering Morrison and kind of getting my, my mind blown all over again. Here's the thing about those collector's editions, though, which I didn't realise till later on. They had a set page count, and sometimes to fit the issues in, they would have to cut pages out of the issues. Really? Yeah, you will find here and there the odd issue where a page was cut out. Usually a page that was irrelevant to the main story, like it was something to do with a B-plot that would be setting up later on, uh, or something along those lines. But I have found when I've... Because I sold my most of my physical comic collection a few years ago, including all of my UK Panini titles. 
and I've sort of started rebuying some of them in trades or digitally. Mm. And I have found the odd issue here where I'm reading it and going, wait, I remember this issue really well, but this page, this one page, I have never read before. <laughs> God, that's wild. And you'd end up doubting yourself uh, yeah. Uh, entirely, yeah. Um, but, I mean, like, I, I, I cannot stress enough how big a part of my teens, like, those things were. Me too. Like, uh, and Panini, Panini UK as a company was cuddly and accessible enough that, you know, they weren't like this kind of massive beast where I, I remember like as a, as a, as a young'un, I remember, um, uh, messaging them, like writing them a letter because that was the done thing at the time. Uh, when one of the books was being cancelled and another was kind of, I think I said, "Hey, I'm I'm subscribed to you and I'm 14, and could I please change my subscription to Astonishing Spider-Man because you're cancelling this book or whatever?" And 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 I'm getting like a getting like a handwritten letter back, going like, uh, "Yes, John, of course we've done that. Thank you." Like <laughs> that was so weird. You couldn't I, can't uh... imagine doing that now. I'm not going to tell you which issues, but I had letters printed in, I think, three issues in total. I, I want to say two of Wolverine and Deadpool and one of possibly, oh, I can't remember, one of the like Marvel anthology books they put out. It wasn't Heroes Reborn, it was another one. But yeah, I, 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 I kept the issues I had my letters in. I'm not telling you which ones because I don't want anybody going and tracking them down. But uh, Did you, would you have been Patrick or would you have been like I, I'm PJ? not even going to give you that. Or did you did you have like a cool pseudonym? Were you like uh, I don't know um, Iron Buster two thousand or something like that? <laughs> Let's go with yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, now I'm gonna have to. I think we're still at my parents' place. To be honest, <laughs> I'm gonna have to trawl back through the records. Um, but yeah, what are we talking about? How did JLA we get Paradise that? Lost. Yeah. So. Somehow, PJ, from uh, you've been you've been reading Paradise Lost, a book yeah, we didn't so even I, know existed. I read all three issues, and uh, I've got to say, I quite enjoyed them. They're written by uh, Mark Miller and art by Ariel Olivetti, who and, I'm um, not familiar with. I have to say, I'm I'm familiar with the name, but I I think I picture his, their work a bit differently um to how it appears in this book i feel like there there are evolved a bit throughout the 2000s uh but they do some really lovely depictions of heaven and hell in this book because basically this three issue story is about first of all it turns it starts with the day the woman zauriel has fallen in love with was having before she then gets home has a message on her aunt's phone from her boyfriend and then zauriel turns up at her door right because it turns out he was her guardian angel mm -hmm. uh, before he decided he fell in love with her and, and fell to Earth. But you've also then got Asmodel and his plot with Neron to take over the Earth, still working behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And basically, Zauriel goes on a road trip with uh, the woman, Connie, Carly, something like that, and her boyfriend, Jerry, who is a nurse. <laughs> to visit Michael, who is the other angel that fell like 40 years previously. And he's living a hippie lifestyle now because he also right. fell in love with his charge when he was a guardian angel and then she died and now he just sort of lives a nomad hippie life with his flaming sword and wings. Okay. Has, the same, was Michael Had Michael ever been introduced before or was that Michael? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. At the same time, Asmodel appears 
in the JLA Watchtower in a flesh suit, which has been made for him, so he can reappear on on the earthly realm, and it's the, that of a small boy, and he kills Jean. Okay. Jean dies. Now, the, the the timelines of this issue are really weird because the League also has Green Arrow and Aztec on it at this point. So clearly the key storyline and that one issue of Aztec have happened at the same time that Zariel is on the road. Oh, wow. Yeah. And but Wonder is, Woman's but is dead. One- Oh, is, is Wonder Woman dead in Paradise yeah. Lost? Oh, okay. Yeah. So clearly this has all happened at the same time as those three issues where Green Arrow and Aztec join the League. Yeah, so it, um, it, it's kind of, we could charitably say it's just before the Revenge Squad attacks Scar City? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, basically, the League, Aztec, because he's a doctor, although not really... Which, you know, given Mark Miller wrote both Aztec and this, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> but Aztec realises John's not actually dead. He's just done something weird with his cells, so it looks like he's dead. But Asmodel and Neron, Etrigan is in the book as well and has a fight with Zariel, which is quite fun. But uh, Asmodel and Neron attack heaven. Zariel gets Carly's boyfriend jerry who is a nurse to kill him flatliners style so okay. he can go to heaven to fight off asmodel and neron jean appears in heaven as well because he's also dead and fights alongside zariel the league then revives jean so he disappears from heaven and then god turns up because god is everywhere anyway and takes asmodel's powers away from him and asmodel is sent to hell where neron's just going to torture him for eternity Actually, okay. Actually, God or like the presence? You don't. See, it's the presence. Yeah. You don't see him either. It's more Zariel says they get into the his sort of what's supposed to be like a throne room type place, and as Asmodel's like, well, there's nothing in here, and Zariel says, well, no, the presence is everything and everywhere. So they already know what you're doing, and then Asmodel just loses his powers and is sent to hell. Okay. Okay. Right. And then uh, Jerry, Carly's boyfriend, brings. Zariel back to life, Flatliners style. They even reference Flatliners in the dialogue, which I quite <laughs> liked. And she says, "Well, I don't love you, Zariel. I love, I love Jerry here." So, and Zariel's like, "Ah, you're happy with him. That's fine." And does it's so weird? Like, I, I, I've read, I've read his name for so long in the comics, and now I'm suddenly doubting how to say it. Z- Zariel, Zariel. Um... I don't know. I, I'm just, I'm just going with what I think it is. I don't know if I'm right. No, but when you say it, it sounds right. When I say it, it sounds wrong. Um, <laughs> Zoriel, 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 Zariel. Uh, d- does he have his new outfit? In throughout the story, he's wearing like the weird toga thing he's got on in his first appearance. The last couple of pages, which are clearly then set after Rock of Ages, uh, have right. Zariel in his headquarters, the Airy, which is above Los Angeles, which has been given to him by the angels, because he said, hey, do you know what would be cool and what would help spread God's word if I became a superhero? Right. And the angels go, hey, that's a really good idea. And then Aquaman, Superman, and Jean are there, and so is Zauriel's new armour in a case. And he says, St. Peter gave this to me. It's a prototype. All the angels are going to be wearing it soon, but they thought they'd give it to me and it could be my superhero uniform. And then Aquaman says, hey, hey, we might be restructuring the league soon and we're going to need a supernatural expert, just so you know. And that's the end. Interesting. 
But the other thing is, issue three came out the month before JLA 16. Because the oh. ending says next month, JLA 16, Camelot. So. Weird. So it has really just been running kind of. Yeah, again, chronolo- chronology a little confused, but kind of running uh, concurrently with what we're talking about right now. So it would have run concurrently with the last uh, three chapters of Rock of Ages and the Prometheus New Year's Evil one-shot, I think, with the issues that would have been coming out around the same time. Ah, you, know, you see, that's really interesting because um, looking ahead in you know the, the trade I'm, I'm holding right now, uh, in a f- couple of issues' time, uh, we see the... Eerie or the airy, however you're not supposed to pronounce it, uh, mm. Zariel's kind of base. Yeah. Uh, and it's the only time it's ever referenced in the pages of JLA. Yeah. But I guess it would have only been, the concept would only have seen publication a, a couple of two, three months earlier. I've, I've got a figure that the series is written by Mark Miller. And I'll just say now, I enjoyed it. It was fun. I don't think it's anything groundbreaking. And I don't think you're missing anything out if you don't read it when you do your big JLA read-through. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it doesn't feel essential, but it is a fun read. But I, I've got to imagine, because obviously Miller and Morrison were known for working together at this time, and Miller had already done one story for JLA Secret Files and Origins 1 that we don't talk about, but he's got another issue of JLA coming up down the line that I do remember really liking. I I really like as well. I I I um I I think it is maybe one of the best things that Mark Miller has ever written. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree, but I've got to imagine that this this mini series even though there's no credit for Morrison on it, that Miller consulted with them and mm. and spoke to them about what his plans for the Zauriel mini was and what Morrison's plans were for Zauriel in the main book so that, that there must have been a conversation at the very least. But again, I'm so I'm endlessly fascinated by some of this stuff because I'm like, what were their plans? And I don't mean like any particular person. I just mean like DC as a whole. What was the goal with Zoriel? Like, you know, you introduce a new character in the pages of JLA, even gets a little mini series at the end of which a status quo is established. He's got a cool tower in Los Angeles. He's got a new outfit. And then he joins the JLA. Like, w- were they hoping he'd kind of take off? You know, a pun not intended, but like, uh, you know, w- were they hoping? Uh, hey, we've established a new character, and you're gonna you're gonna love him in the pages of JLA, and maybe he's gonna have a life beyond that. And I don't think he ever did. I imagine they were hoping that. I think I'm guessing Paradise Lost didn't sell very well, based on the fact neither of us had heard of it up until a month or two yeah. ago. <laughs> I don't think it was ever collected. Um, I bought the issues on Comixology, and there doesn't seem to be a collected version of it on there that I could see. So my guess is the issues didn't sell very well, and that's why Zauriel only really appears, because obviously Morrison had a plan for the character. So that's why Zauriel only really appears in JLA, plus the odd guest appearance here. And like I remember him turning up in Supergirl, uh, but that's because Peter David was also doing sort of some biblical angel stuff in that mm. comic, so it made sense for Zariel to pop up there. But well, and yeah. of course, it's interesting because Morrison and Miller collaborated to create Aztec. You know, it, it's like uh, it, DC, like Marvel. You know, they can fall back on their their kind of pantheon of, of the big hitters. You know, the ones that the characters that have been around for a long time. But every now and then, they do try to introduce new characters, and it's always a bit of 
you know, potluck as to which ones take off and which ones don't. You know, um, you know, I'm trying to think. Uh, I think in the mid 2000s, Marvel introduced like a character. Oh, he could, he could control gravity, and he was like a younger hero. And they, oh, yeah, they were really they really seemed to be building him up as going to be. He's a here's a new character you're going to love. And it didn't quite take off, and he got kind of like uh, relegated to just one of their many, many, many kind of D-list, F-list Yeah, he characters. had like his own mini and was guest starring everywhere for a couple of months and then just disappeared. Was the character actually called Gravity? He may have been, because I wanted to say Graviton, but that's a villain, obviously. So yeah, yeah. It may have just been called Gravity. Maybe it was just the name didn't help. Um, but then you've got someone like uh, Kamala, uh, Kamala Khan, Ms. Marvel... Who just completely resonated with people, and yeah. you know, is clearly and or Miles Morales, you know, characters that are now pretty much part of the canon. Um, I feel like those two, though, they have legacy names: Miles Morales, Spider Man, and Miss Marvel. Obviously, was Carol Danvers before she became Captain Marvel. So I feel like with those two, it helps that they they have names that fans mm. already recognize their superhero names, maybe. And that's interesting, actually, because you know, uh, I'm thinking like uh, Kate Bishop very popular character but also tied to the hawkeye name um i'm trying to think i'm trying to think of the last time marvel or dc created an entirely new character from scratch who really had the legs to kind of go for it you know um i think with marvel it might well be ms marvel actually yeah yeah maybe so I can think of a few they've tried since, but none of them seem to have really clicked. Oh, no, wait, maybe Ironheart. Yeah, has she... Does she have much of a presence at the moment? Is she, is she like, still... <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I know there was a lot of fanfare when she was introduced, but is she still a going concern? As far as I know, she still has her own book, and definitely she has an upcoming Disney Plus series. Hmm. Okay, okay, interesting. But again, it's like thinking of Miller and Morrison. It's like they tried with Aztec, and I imagine you've got to, you know, you've got to do a bit of finagling with the DC editorial team to say, give us a chance. I reckon we can make this character a new character, a new a new one for the ages. Um, didn't it didn't land with Aztec? They tried. We love him. Didn't take off. Were, were they, I don't know, were they hoping to that Zoriel would do better? I don't know. Perhaps, yeah, because Zoriel, that story would have been published around the same time as issue five or six of Aztec. So Morrison would try them both at once, I guess. And that actually is one of the things I did like about Paradise Lost is it did give me a little bit of extra time. Not much, but a little <laughs> bit of extra time with Connor and with Aztec. So I know. It's so weird, isn't it? It's like... Um... You know, clearly these characters did not resonate with the wider audience, and we should be grateful they got this brief amount of time uh, in the pages of JLA. But it's like, I'm still carrying a torch for them after all these years. I do just want to give a brief shout-out as well to Morrison and Miller's other 90s creation that I am a big fan of, the Skrull Kill Crew in Marvel Comics. Ah, one I've never, one I've never read, although during Secret Invasion... Yeah, they brought them back. Uh, some of the I, I found some of the most enjoyable content at that period was the Avengers Academy or whatever it was called tie-in that brought the skull. Uh, Avengers the back. Initiative. Yes, the Initiative. Yeah, 
when uh, Triathlon became 3D Man, the new yes. 3D Man, and joined the, sc- the Scroll Kill Crew. And yeah. I thought that was fantastic. I was like, "Oh, this is this is this is pure comic. Like, <laughs> this is very entertaining." You should you should check out the original. It's only a five issue mini, uh, the Scroll Kill Crew. I've got a trade of it somewhere, but it's really fun. Uh, it it's clearly very irreverent, and it does feature a very good guest appearance by Captain America. Ah, well, there you go. Something else to track down. Um, I guess one, one. I guess my final question on the Zoriel thing would be uh, Zoriel. Damn it, would be um, what's his personality like in the pages of Paradise Lost? Because I I love him in the pages of JLA, but I think it's fair to say he had a major personality transplant between his first appearance and his second appearance. It feels like a, a to be honest, quite natural in between state. Mm. Really, he shows up and he is saying he's in love with this woman and everything. But then he sort of learns through his adventure that he can't just turn up and do that. And she loves this man, and she really does love him. And and Zauriel says, "Actually, I'm, I'm quite happy to see that. Oh, I'll go be a fun superhero instead." And yeah, but there is. It does feel like it is a natural development if you read that mini from where he is in his first appearance to how he is then when he appear, reappears in JLA 16. Hmm. Interesting. Well, maybe I'll track it down as well, if if only, as you say, to uh, spend a bit more time with those characters. As I say, it's, it's not going to change your life, but I think I thought it was a fun read. And I think um, Ariel Olivetti's art, I think there's there's some really, really good stuff in there. It's a very powerful depiction of, of Electric Blue Superman. Oh. The, and oh. I'm down with that. Well, there we go. I mean, yeah, you you've you've sold it to me. If, if only for a bit more, <laughs> a bit more time with the the big blue. Um, it does revisit the scene where Superman wrestles with Asmodel in the uh, initial storyline. Just one panel, but I was like, oh, oh yeah. And then I had my happy memories again. That was so good. I'm thinking, even thinking back to it now. It's like, yeah. Oh, um, top five Superman moments ever. I, I, well, um, speaking of, uh, I'm going to try and segue here. Uh, speaking of. Um, key moments from earlier in the series um well done we, thank you thank you um we should mention that we've had um uh, some amazing uh, kind of fan mail uh from chris murphy who uh we've mentioned in a previous episode for introducing us to the concept of the clock uh the oh, yeah. <laughs> the granddaddy of grifter's mask um insert Remorseful comment from PJ. No, nope, PJ, PJ is abstaining. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, we'll agree. We'll disagree that you're wrong. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, Chris, who apparently uh, just is just a walking encyclopedia of information, which is kind of astonishing, um, has um, basically pointed out that a lot of the things that we kind of loved uh, about some of Morrison's previous issues. Our, our direct callbacks, we again, we were unaware of this, direct callbacks to particular moments from uh, Justice League or Superman history or DC continuity as a whole. Um, PJ, I've got a few points here to bring up. Um, yeah. The, the first would be uh, going back to the key storyline where the League were trapped in psycho-hallucinogenic chemical dreams of alternate lives... We see a version of Gotham City where 
Um, oh, it's uh, it's uh, Dick Grayson, isn't it? Is now Batman. Tim Drake. Oh, it's Tim Drake. Sorry, no, it's Tim Drake. And um, there's a new Robin who is uh, a red-headed Robin who is the biological son of Bruce Wayne and Selina Kyle, Catwoman. Bruce, Bruce Jr., isn't it? Bruce Jr., yes. Now, we were like, oh, that's a fun future. But apparently, it's a direct reference to Batman issue 131 from April 1960. Where um, I've got, I've got again, again, kudos to Chris. I don't know how he does this. I have a, a photo here of the cover, and it's yeah, exact, exact scenario, uh, only slightly different in that in this future, an elderly Bruce Wayne uh, married and had a child with Kathy Kane, who was the original Batwoman. Yes. Yeah, and you sent me this email and forwarded it to me. And when I saw it, I think I think it's something I was vaguely aware of before, but doesn't stick in my memory. So yeah, I knew about that that story, or well, I'd heard about that story, so I knew that this that version of Batman and Robin. But yeah, for when when Chris Ford did that onto you and you sent it to me, then I was like, ah, yes, that's really cool. Um, I feel. Um... I feel Morrison uh, uh, may have missed a trick by not insisting that uh, both uh, Batman and Robin have massive Roman numerals on their chests. For the I know, two. <laughs> <laughs> which is such an inferiority complex. Like, <laughs> <laughs> literally, just let let them be heroes. Of course, if he if they had his version, sorry, their version of Robin would have had to have been like Robin four or five by that point, though, wouldn't they? So. Yeah, and again, it uh, and again, like in that original version, uh, it is Dick Grayson who is Batman yeah. Two, uh, of course, cha- you know, adjusted for the revised continuity. Um, and also, again, uh, we see an elderly, uh, an elderly Joker, which I didn't with, know about, from Batman One Hundred and Forty Five from February nineteen sixty two, where who looks very much like the elderly Joker who turns up in that that key fantasy. Yeah, yeah, that was very cool. I really enjoyed seeing that. And next bit of trivia uh, is uh, in Superman's fantasy, where he is the Green Lantern of Krypton, uh, we see that Tomar Ray is the Green Lantern of Krypton's space sector, which has been established already in continuity in Superman 257 from October 1972. That's crazy because it's again. Chris sent us the page, and I think it's only like from one or two pages of of that Superman book. And for one, for Morrison to remember that those pages and go, yeah, that's established. I'll do that. Pre Crisis, that was established, but I'll stick to that. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I love it, and just just because it is a Green Lantern that we know as well, it just just does give it that little bit of extra feeling behind it. But yeah. And I guess the big question is, did Morrison know that? Like, was was that a particular piece of information stored away in Morrison's brain? Maybe they'd read that comic. Or can you... In, in the year 1997, you can't look it up online, could you just call the DC archive department and ask them... Who's the Green Lantern of the Krypton space sector, and they'd be able to tell you? I suppose you could, but 
you've got to imagine with how well we already know Morrison knows these stories. Morrison was a big fan of the Gold and Silver Age and how much we know they've read. I'm, I'm sure they just knew. You straight away say to Grant Morrison, yeah. oh, who's the Green Lantern of uh, the Sector Krypton's in? Boom, Tomar Ray. Well, PJ, um, the the trivia train continues here because let's uh, let's spin on to Rock of Ages. Hmm. Um, the war, the Philosopher's Stone, also known as the Whirlagog, the Warlagog, um, has previously appeared in in DC continuity. Um, completely news to me. Was that was that news to you? Completely. I had absolutely no idea. Okay, uh, and it's Jack Kirby. Um, this turned up in again a non a non canon out of continuity story by Jack Kirby, Superpowers issue four from November nineteen eighty four. And again, Chris's centers kind of screenshots. I should say it's absolutely wild to see Jack Kirby drawing the Justice League. I know, I love it so much. <laughs> it's very strange, like that didn't happen very often, did it? No, not not often, no. No. And again, I'm not 100% certain of the context. I mean, they're dealing with Dark Side again, and for some reason the JLA are also... They're having to... I don't know, Lex Luthor's there, and the Joker and the Penguin and Brainiac. Um, and yeah, and you've got the Warlagog, which looks pretty much exactly like it did in the pages of JLA. So... Again, Morrison just really weaving in old and weird continuity into the series in, in a way that I'd never really appreciated. See, this this one was a genuine surprise to me because the design of the Whirlagog felt more Ditko than Kirby to me. So the fact that it, it it's actually a Kirby creation, for some reason, was just a big surprise to me. But I absolutely love it. You know, if you're going to bring in Jack Kirby stuff to DC, your DC stories, and do it well... Yeah, I you know I love those those old Jack Kirby stories and just superb stuff. And I I am so grateful to Chris for bringing these to our <laughs> attention. And and please keep doing it. If there's stuff we we haven't picked up on that is from like lesser known DC history, keep us on our toes, please. Oh yeah, I love hold, it. hold us to account. Uh, and 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 PJ, uh, I just want you to know. Uh, you will never be. You can. You could never be replaced as a host, and you could never. You could <laughs> never be replaced as the font of knowledge. But uh, I just want you. To, I don't want you to feel bad that someone has come along with with even greater knowledge than you. I don't want you to feel bad at all. I, I have always said that there are people who know this stuff better and more than <laughs> I do. So it is absolutely fine as long as I continue to know more than you, John. I'm happy. <laughs> Well, it doesn't take much, PJ, and I, I am I am constantly in awe of uh, not just not just your knowledge, but also your willingness to learn. I mean, you read uh, you read Genesis. Oh yes, yes, I did. Now we do we do have we've had another email from Chris uh, just a couple of days ago, and I don't think I've sent this one to you, PJ. So no, you I do, haven't. This I no. do I do apologise. I've been hoarding this one for myself. Um, but we're this refers to Earth Two. So this might, ah. this might be of interest to you. So Owlman is Thomas Wayne Jr. Yeah. Uh, and apparently this is another obscure piece of DC continuity, which Morrison... No way. <laughs> yeah. So um, in World's Finest 223, 
Good Lord. From June 1974 and issue 227 from February 1975. These are the first and only appearances of Bruce Wayne's long-lost brother, Thomas Wayne Jr. So apparently the story is such that Thomas had a terrible accident that left him with brain trauma, which shifted his personality... So the Waynes placed him in the care of Willowwood Asylum. Okay. And then Bruce was born. And they weren't going to tell Bruce that he had a brother until he was old enough to handle it. But then before they could tell Bruce, the Waynes were killed. And in in these issues of World's Finest, Thomas Jr. escapes the asylum and starts killing people. uh, Batman has to fight and stop him. Yeah, yeah. And he ends up dying. So there we go. It is a, it is a reference. Okay, give me give me those. I need to read that. Give me those issue numbers. I'm going to see if those I, are on I, Comicsology later on. And one final thing, which uh, uh, Chris has highlighted rightly, is that in Morrison's uh, The Return of Bruce Wayne, uh, which is part of his Batman of their Batman run, which I haven't read, yeah, which I which I have read, but there's an issue uh, which is set in like the 1950s where they visit Willowwood Asylum. So again, Morrison kind of really paying attention to the fine details there. That, that name does ring a bell, though. I'm sure Willowwood Asylum has come up again in other stories, perhaps. Yeah, it. Yeah, maybe that's, maybe that's like um, one of the kind of established pieces of Gotham... Like the kind of landmarks, you know, that writers can pull upon. I'm sure there must be like a a Bible document that DC yeah. has. I'm I'm assuming then that that version of Thomas Wayne Jr. was erased from continuity when Crisis happened. I mean, yeah, they, it would have had to have been, surely. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess it because I guess if if Morrison hadn't been aware of that, it would have been an astonishing coincidence because because in a, in a parallel universe. Um, you know, um, the Bruce's non-existent brother could have been called anything. Could have been Stanley yeah. Wayne, you know. Um, Chuck Wayne, for example. Chuck so, Wayne. So, yeah. John Wayne. John Wayne. Uh, yeah, John Wayne. John's a good name. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, just... Um, you, you do have to wonder, you know, did... did did they did they just have this encyclopedic knowledge? Oh, or... I'm sure they did. I'm sure they did. It just adds a nice bit of resonance, doesn't it? And yeah. Speaking of the crime syndicate, you know how we talked about how they haven't been used very much? They're mm. coming back. Really? Yep. DC are doing... I don't know. I've just seen a one-page advert for it, so I know nothing more than this. But DC are doing a Peacemaker series, presumably to tie in with the fact that the character is appearing in their upcoming Suicide Squad film played by John Cena and has a TV show as well that's going to spin off the back of that. Really? But the cover to issue one seems to indicate that Peacemaker is going after the crime syndicate. I can't keep track of... DC continuity right now. Um, I know a version of the crime syndicate turned up in the post New Fifty Two kind of continuity. Mm-hmm. Have they rebooted again since then? Uh, I believe there was some kind of soft reboot uh, since then. Um, Convergence, maybe, or 
Something to do with the metal storyline? I can't really remember. So my question is, is this the same version of the crime syndicate that turned up in post-New 52, or is it another reinterpretation of those characters? I've given you all the information I have. DJ, for crying out loud, why don't you have the answers I so desperately I, don't, I so desperately need? Because I haven't read a new DC or Marvel book for over a year now. But hey kids, we're still we're still cool. We still get it. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, uh, Chris, thank you so much. Uh and you know, please keep it coming. Um if you want to be the honorary kind of um remote remote member of, of a JLA cast team we very much appreciate your your research and anyone else as well who wants to get in touch and tell us things we've missed we we genuinely love hearing about it so do please if if there's something you want to just email us about do it and uh PJ to, to you know um to prove that uh you know we're not all about the past and and we we totally get current continuity and storytelling should we continue talking about a 23-year-old series? Let's do it. Let's dive into this very modern comic. So, PJ, um, where are we then? What, what's even happening? What's about to happen in the world of JLA? Uh, issue issue 18 is what yeah. we're dealing with? Yeah, so we've just had the, uh, the new league being formed, introduced to the world, uh, including now the full lineup. So we're aware that Orion and Big Barda have arrived and joined the team. Oracle's there as well. And they've just defeated Prometheus. So JLA 18 was my first ever issue of, of JLA, and I do want to start talking about the cover this time. Because I think this is a really, really good cover. It Yes, it is, yeah. Um, we basically have uh, Wonder Woman, a.k.a. Hippolyta, holding, uh, I guess, kind of Batman's uh, clothes, for lack of a better word, as um, flesh-coloured mist kind of comes out of the cowl. Uh, and behind her, um, we see uh, Wally and Kyle uh, d- disintegrating, turning to smoke. Yeah, kind of, Flash's, kind of costume, Flash's costume is already empty with just the, the mist coming out of it, while Kyle has the, the same mist coming out of his hands and his mouth, and he's screaming. And yeah, it's just such an intriguing image. Like, you see this cover and you go, what the hell is happening here? I need to read this issue. So I think it's very effective. So yeah, you had this, you, you've talked about this before, but you, you had the soft cover of this. You had the individual issue? I had the floppy, yeah. A friend wow. of mine for one of my birthdays gave me just a, a small stack of comics that they just, random comics they picked up in a comic shop for me, and this was one of them. And this is the only one I really remember from that small pile started my love affair with the JLA. It's on the basis of this and the next issue that I eventually also tracked down that I then started buying the trades. It is weird, isn't it? Because this is one of those um, like uh, evocative covers in that it doesn't actually depict anything that... It, nothing like this happens in the story, but it captures the spirit of it quite well. Yeah. yeah. It is it's, horrifying. It's <laughs> excellent work from Howard Porter. I don't like how the smoke is is flesh coloured. That that bothers that bothers me. It's that combined with how it's coming out of Kyle's mouth that really is the most disturbing part of this cover. I think. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, thanks for the memories, Howard. That's that's going to stay with me. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, right off the bat, we open 
with a flashback seven weeks ago. And we are um, in a completely innocuous kind of setting. Who, who are these people? What's going on? We um, have a, a scientist, Professor Julian September, who is a professor of quantum mechanics, and uh, some kind of military general who's basically there to approve the budget for Professor September's new project. And PJ, I have to ask, is Julian September, is that a pun? Is his name a pun? I mean, Batman's going to lay it out for you later on in the issue. Why are you asking me now? Oh, God, does he? I can't remember. (laughs) I've forgotten that. Okay. (laughs) Okay, sorry. Listeners, pretend that didn't happen because I'm not editing it out. Um, (laughs) But no, apparently uh, Julian September uh, is a professor of quantum mechanics. And uh, his uh, clearly has some kind of military uh, contract. And uh, yeah, his... Basically, his asshole supervisor is not impressed, basically. Yeah, he basically says, uh, can you fix my Jeep? And it's quantum mechanics joke there, folks. Dr. September says, not that kind of mechanics. So this general says, well, then I'm not going to approve your colossal drain on the military budget. And ticks a box that says funding denied and asks if his fancy computer program can fix that problem. Yes, and uh, for the benefit of the reader... Uh, he has a clipboard with, uh, in massive writing, funding granted or funding denied with two massive tick boxes and he puts a cross to say, you're not getting anything. And um, apparently, yeah, this general is just not a fan. You know, he, he's pulling the plug and he says, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to give you the money. Can your fancy computer fix that, Professor? And Julian September uh, uh, presses you know, his mouse and goes click and we see like a weird little uh sphere next to the computer. It looks technological, it's crackling with Kirby Kirby crackle, and he goes, Let's see. I think the the little device, even the lines on it, the design of the technology there, even that looks very Kirby to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then a bolt of lightning kind of um crackles through a window and uh strikes for general. Killing him, because the next panel is Julian September receiving his grant and saying condolences to General Vincent's family. Yeah, again, uh, it's nice to know that um, if um, someone isn't giving you funding, uh, you just have to wait for them to die, uh, uh, and then you'll get everything you want. Yeah. He says, I've been unlucky all my life, but I can guarantee that's all about to change. So we cut to today, uh, where we have... Three uh, thieves in a three, three, in a three boat. bank robbers, yeah. Three bank robbers who are rowing to safety in an inflatable dinghy uh, down quite a busy river. It's a Snake River in Idaho, uh, which we have to assume is a, a real place. Perhaps, yes, no, maybe, no idea. Let's go Awf- with maybe. Awfully specific. Um, and uh, apparently they are, you know, they think they've maybe got away from Plastic Man, who uh, was apparently uh, intervening in their bank robbery. So they're like, hey, we did it. We're on a boat. We made it. What are the odds that we would um, find a raft? And they say, we haven't seen Plastic Man for an hour, but we've got it. We've got down the rapids in a raft. And then they look down and realize this this big yellow and red raft and they just shout it's him oh god and they start shooting at their raft 
Um, only for the raft to uh, become punctured and sink and um, for them all to fall into the water. And they're like, I, I, I mean, it looks like Plastic Man. I could have sworn that it's got his patterns and everything. And if that, if a raft isn't him, where is he? Um, to which we see that Plastic Man has formed into an utterly colossal mouth at, at the river and the river is flowing into his face. It's such a brilliant moment. I love it. It's so stupid, but I love it. It's incredibly stupid. And um, Plastic Man, uh, you know, um, transforms into a more kind of humanoid shape, uh, tries to grab them, only for them all to disappear below the surface uh, one by one, which he finds confusing. Yeah, you just get little speech bubbles from Plastic Man with question marks in them. And then he says, uh, what's the matter? Are you sleeping with the fishes? At which point Aquaman bursts out of the river, having tied the criminals up using the uh, his lasso, his hook lasso thing. And so Plastic Man just says, Aquadude, what brings you here? And um, as Aquaman loads the thieves into a hot air balloon, which is Plastic Man. Plastic yep. Man has become a hot air balloon. Uh, Aquaman goes, just in the neighbourhood, which, now that I think about it, is strange. Although not as strange as you. And then we cut to the police station where they've taken the thieves and Plastic Man's saying, thank you for the help, but how does this get marked down in my JLA stats? Don't need to credit you with an assist. <laughs> and Aquaman says... There aren't any stats, and how much credit do you want? You defeated them largely because you bore a striking resemblance to their raft. Uh, to which Plasky Man goes, what a coinky-dink. Uh, and then Aquaman, with a look of horror, um, is kind of like erased from existence. Like, he is literally just being like rubbed out, basically, and yeah, he's just vanishing. While behind Plastic Man on the TV, on Channel 7 News, Julian September is announced as America's newest Nobel Prize winner. Hmm. So we cut to Gotham City, uh, which, you know, is always a very peaceful place. Not really a lot kind of going on there. Um, and we are in an elevator going up a tower. And um, everybody's freaking out because apparently somebody is going to kill them. Yeah, and they start... One of the people in the lift is Bruce Wayne, and they start shouting, Bruce, where's the escape hatch? And, and Bruce just very calmly says, well, there isn't one there. Interior escape hatches are movies and television. Modern elevators can only be accessed from outside. And everyone else is panicking. And Bruce says, look, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. And we cut to the uh, roof of the elevator? Where Sorry, I should point out, that including Bruce, there are seven people in this elevator. Only just noticed that, but carry on, John. <laughs> I'm sure that's not important, PJ. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we cut to the roof of the elevator where a uh, dude with a bandana and an overcoat and a bomb strapped to his chest uh, with a big visible timer uh, with 19 seconds left to go is basically uh, uh, ranting and raving uh, because he was apparently fired by uh, Wayne Tech and uh, his wife left him, took the kids. Um, he's, yeah, and now he just wants revenge. So he's just going to blow up Bruce Wayne. I think that's, you know, reasonable. Yeah. Shouting that there's nothing wrong with him while he does it. And then in the lift, 
one of the other guys says, Bruce, give him his job back. Do something. And as Bruce reaches for the light switch, he says, I intend to. But then, before Bruce can do anything, Huntress arrives on the scene, fires a crossbow bolt into the bomb, which stops it at seven seconds. Seven seconds And then just knocks the dude out. Yeah. um, And then we cut to the lobby where uh, Huntress has the guy kind of tied up and uh, she's chatting with Bruce Wayne. And she goes, I wasn't even after this guy. Uh, I overheard his explosives dealer (laughs) bragging about this hit when I busted him an hour ago. Sometimes you just get lucky. And then as she says lucky, PJ, this is incredible, she is erased from existence, much like Aquaman. Ooh. Meanwhile, there's a close-up on the newspaper Bruce Wayne is carrying, and it says, Julian September, stock whiz turns market upside down for seventh day. Well, here's a, here's a question for you, PJ. Um, did Huntress know that Bruce Wayne was Batman? No. No. So she's, you know, nicely, uh, very kind of her, just having a conversation with Bruce Wayne, which is nice. Yeah, well, I assume he's, he's obviously, because he knows he's Batman. You would hope. Uh, <laughs> he's probably just taken her aside to say, oh, thank you very much. That was that. We really appreciate that. And yeah, that's what's happened. Batman's greatest achievement was convincing himself that he wasn't Batman. <laughs> um, but we cut to... Uh, this is a real tour of America, isn't it, PJ? We cut to uh, Newark, um, where um, two planes are about to fly into each other. Uh, but thankfully, Hippolyta is uh, on the back of a plane, uh, dragging its um, oh, whatever you call it, the wing flap thing. It's steering rudder. flap. Yeah, the steering flap. Yeah, it's air wheel. She's uh, she's turning it. The directiony make- bit. The directiony bit. Thank you, PJ. I knew you were. You know, obviously, uh, um, you're many years in aviation, uh, and she is able to divert one of the planes so it doesn't hit the other. And then she's she radios Superman to say that's that's two. How many more are converging on the same airspace? And Superman says five. So there's seven planes. Seven planes could mean anything. And Superman says he's got the next three. Just as he's converting his voice to an electromagnetic frequency that Wonder Woman can hear, he then cuts into the radio signals that manipulate the wing flaps and manage to move them all out of each other's paths. And can I just say, right here, this is uh, Mark Wade also doing what Grant Morrison does and using Superman's powers in a much more interesting way than anyone did on the solo Superman books at the time. It does make you wonder, doesn't it? Like, if you're going to go to the effort of making Superman the man of energy, like, surely that just opens up so many opportunities. Why why would you have boring stories where he's just flying and punching people? <laughs> yeah. But Superman says, that's those three done. Steel, you've done your part by alerting us, and now clear out, we'll get the last two. And Steel says, no, I've got it. They're uh, they're playing chicken. I can't lift them with my boot jets, but what I can do is throw my hammer at one of them and disable its engine. Yeah, and two questions um, here. One, Hippolyta can fly right. I mean, we're seeing her fly here, but mm. did you say that she functions as Wonder Woman by using like items and like artifacts to like s- kind of recreate Diana's powers. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I think, and I might have got this wrong because I haven't read the actual books, but I think it's her boots that allow her to fly, and I, I think she's got like a belt of strength that uh, that she can 
that gives her not as strong as Diana, which is something that this scene always sort of bothered me before because I was like, well, she's moving a whole plane, but actually if she's just moving one part of it, I think the belt probably does give her enough strength to do that. And it does look hard. Like she's, you know, she's yeah. really working for it. Yeah. Um, I guess kind of like coupling this with uh, what we see in Earth 2 where um, the, the League are dealing with another plane that's kind of crashing. Or not crashing. No planes crash here, which is great. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, the different kind of strength levels, I suppose. Also, PJ, my question was going to be, um, is this the first point at which um, we start seeing Steel's hammer with a shorter stick? Uh yeah, it might be. I wondered if that was just perspective or if that was... But yeah, I'm not... Certainly it had a longer one in the last story. I mean, I assume it's extendable. but um, Or maybe he has many hammers that he can wheel out for different, <laughs> different scenarios. But it's a lot more of like a Mjolnir kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, it is. But he does the job and the uh, the plane... He says, well, look, the passengers are swallowing their peanuts hard, but they'll limp okay to the tarmac. <laughs> and then as they all land, Hippolyta says, nicely done. Hephaestus himself would be proud. And I love Steele's response of, yeah, well, tell him I said hello, I guess. <laughs> um, Yeah, so, it, you know, despite a bit of damage to the plane, uh, Steele, you know, is able to do his thing because he's a smart person. Um, And, yeah, and as, as the three of them kind of... Um, reconvene down on the ground steel points out that the very fact that they dis he, he noticed that this was about to happen that seven planes were about to crash into each other was a pure coincidence he just stumbled across uh their their radio signal complete complete blind luck pj and then he says somehow a computer glitch mapped seven jumbo jets on an identical flight path and then newspapers just start blowing around him and, and covering him as he says the odds on that are wait what's happening with the newspapers and they bury him completely <laughs> and as Superman and Wonder Woman pull them away suddenly Steel's just not there yeah and um, uh, we see one of the newspapers under Wonder Woman's foot with the headline Julian September wins lottery seven days straight. And can I just say, I love the way Porter draws those panels of the newspapers hitting steel. You can sort of just feel the wind blow up and and how it how it feels to be seeing it from Superman and Wonder Woman's point of view as well. It's it's so weird, but I think Porter just captures it beautifully. It's a very it's a it's a really cool and also just very weird kind of moment because. Uh, Aquaman and Huntress weren't consumed by newspapers. Um, have you seen um, Brazil? By yeah, yeah. Isn't doesn't that happen to? Um... Oh, I can't remember his name now. Uh, Robert Robert De Niro. De Niro's character, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, it get, does. He, he gets consumed by newspapers. I wonder if that was a direct reference. It wouldn't surprise me if it was. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, Steel has been uh, consumed by the nation's greatest killer which is newspapers and we cut to we cut to the watchtower on the moon yeah and jean is standing before a bank of screens where batman and wonder woman are reporting the disappearances of hippolyta and steel and barter is also reporting that both zariel and orion have disappeared completely and there we get the credits synchronicity mark wade guest writer howard porter penciler john del inca ken lopez letterer pat garrahy colorist 
Heroic Age Separations, L.A. Williams Assistant Editor and Dan Raspler Editor. And uh, good old Jean is uh, kind of, um, you know, I guess trying to take stock of all this. And he says, amazing. This could be anything from an attack by Epoch to Brainstorm's Revenge. So, PJ. Yeah. Epoch is the Lord of Time. Yeah. Who we saw in the pages of JLA Wildcats. Yeah. The seminal JLA Wildcats. Uh, moving on. Um, Brainstorm? Is the Lord of Brains? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Gen- um, no, I'm, I'm not that familiar with... I, I don't really know who Brainstorm is, I'm afraid. Not off okay. the top of my head. I could probably uh, look him up, but... My and I guess my my only my only problem with Zhang's statement here is that he's being weirdly specific and also not nearly not nearly broad enough because he's saying like man somebody's wiping out leaguers this could literally be like two people no no it it could be thousands it could be anyone <laughs> you have so many enemies. <laughs> I feel like because people are sort of disappearing, he's well, Epoch could be erasing them from time. Or maybe they're expecting something from Brainstorm. I don't know. I mean, there is a Transformer called Brainstorm, but I don't think it'll be that. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, maybe John's just sort of listing through, right, what threats are we currently expecting and which of them could do this? Yeah, it, again, it could just be, it could be just a throwaway kind of thing. I wasn't sure if, like, Brain, because I'm not familiar with Brainstorm as a DC villain, but I, I'm just wondering, was it reference to something particular which you would know about PJ being so so knowledgeable? God, fine, I'll look it up. <laughs> no, we can look it up later. I was just curious. Um, but yeah, Jean uh, basically says, uh, okay, we're uh, this is under investigation. You know, until we get to the bottom of this, uh, always work in pairs, even you, Batman. So yeah. Yeah, because that always works on Batman. Um, PJ, are you researching right now? Uh, I was trying to, but there are three different characters called Brainstorm in DC continuity, apparently, and I can't be bothered to go any further with it. No, it's not worth it. Um, but Oracle, however, is on the line, and uh, uh, John reaches out to her. Yeah, and she says, look, I'm here, I'm just really busy. You wouldn't normally catch me in on a Tuesday, but blind luck seems to be all the rage. And then she says, the exact same species of lizard has reigned on three Ohio towns, and an old piece of the Skylab satellite fell into the National Air and Space Museum, injuring 40, plus every single person in Wyoming with the last name Dixon contracted typhoid. <laughs> um, also, does does crime take a break on Tuesdays? You know, Oracle uh, yeah. doesn't well, crime, work Tuesdays. Crime requires Oracle takes a break on Tuesdays. On Tuesdays, it's more just the the big smashy crimes that don't require much thinking. I can't believe Batman of all people. I can't believe he gives people a, a weekday off. Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Oracle doesn't give him a choice. No, no. I think she's one of the few people who probably would be able to kind of stand her ground there. I yeah. feel. Um, but yeah, so there appear to be a lot of weird coincidences going on, PJ. Isn't that strange? Yeah, but Jean, before he can sort of think about it, is interrupted by Kyle radioing and, and saying, uh, Flash and I are getting our butts handed to us, said by seven supervillains who decided to kidnap the president. And you can see Kyle and Wally mostly just getting civilians out of the way as these villains seem to be attacking each other. You've got Captain Cold, who is shooting at Wally, but then a big 
strong purple guy I'm not familiar with is attacking Captain Cold while Merlin shoots an arrow at that guy. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna ask you, PJ, because there's the atomic skull. Yeah. There's a kind of green lizardy kind of thing which I'm not familiar with. Are you? No, me neither. And then well, I feel like I've seen, I've come across this character before, but I cannot remember what they're called. And then there's also a dude with guns who also kind of looks familiar, but I, I can't bring their name to mind. And yep. there's and there's a dude covered in r- red and yellow spots all over his body. That might be Polka Dot Man. Polka Dot Man. Um, yes, I think I've heard. Of, yes. What can Polka Dot Man do? Can't remember. Something with dots, one would imagine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, and apparently um, uh, Kyle and, and Wally are calling for help because they are struggling to to contain the chaos. Yeah, so Jean says, look, we'll be right there, identify the group's leader, scramble their communications, and Kyle just interrupts saying, yeah, we can't do that because they didn't arrive together. By coincidence, they all picked this moment to strike and now they're angrier at each other than they are at us. <laughs> and all Kyle and Wally can do is pull innocent bystanders away from the uh, from the melee. Um, yeah, and they both point out that this is an incredibly weird coincidence, and as, and, and John, you know, races towards the teleporter to come and help, um, while, and here's, this is going to be a hell of a sentence, uh, Wally picks, uh, uh, dashes to save a woman who's caught in the crossfire between the atomic skull and the polka dot man, uh, only to discover that this random woman he saved is actually... Linda, who is his wife or girlfriend? I can't remember. I, I can't remember if they're married or not at this point, to be honest. Uh, right, I've just looked up which villains these are. Oh, cool. Here we uh, go. The, the, the antagonists in this issue. Atomic Skull, Captain Cold, Deadline, oh, uh, probably which the is the with guy the with the guns. Dr. Spectro. Which is oh. the ah? Oh, that's the that's the guy we thought was Polka Dot Man. Sure, sure. Helgramite, that's the lizard dude. Yeah. Uh, Merlin, as I said, and so the big purple dude is Pile Driver. Pile Driver. I would have said Blockbuster, but no, Pile Driver. Yeah. So I'm curious, what can Doctor Spectro do? Uh, Doctor Spectro. Uh, enemy of Captain Atom who used colourful beams of light that could affect people's emotions. Oh, yeah, and PJ, uh, I never knew this character's name, but he pops up again in um, World War Three, the final volume. Oh, God, yes! He's part yes, of the, he does. Part of the rioters in, spoilers, in the prison. Something to look forward to. Ah, uh, yeah, there we go. It all comes together. God, always learning. Um... <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, here's a question for you, PJ. Uh, Linda, is she a reporter as well? Uh, oh, yes, she is. Yeah, huh. yeah, because well, she says here flew in for a press conference. Lot of lot of superhero kind of partners are also in journalism. Oh, that's how you meet them, isn't it? I suppose. Yeah, and it's also how you suppress knowledge. Yeah. But while while Wally's waiting for the the cavalry to show up, you then get a lovely. Almost two thirds of the page image as the league arrive, and 
Superman zaps the Helgramite while Barda stomps on the atomic skull's head. Wonder Woman punches Dr. Spectro into the sky and Plastic Man is a tank now. It's times like this where I certainly hope that one of Dr. Spectro's many powers is invulnerability. Uh, or, or Wonder Woman just killed a man. <laughs> but then uh, there's a lovely moment where Barda says, are we at full force? Where's Batman? Who was with him last? And Superman just says, oh, that's right, you're new to the team. You actually expected him to partner up. Um, I would say the only thing, the only thing I find uh, slightly jarring about this scene is that given what the new League has had to put up with, given that they face the Hyper Clan, the key angels... I personally find it quite hard to believe that Kyle and Wally couldn't just wipe the floor with these guys in five minutes. I think you, you've got to remember that they've probably turned up after the villains, so there's already carnage, and all they can do at the moment is is keep people safe and get the the public out of harm's way, because this probably escalated before they got there. That's fair. I, I will give them that. And because they're good people, they are, they're trying to save the bystanders. So Yeah. And, but then when the rest of the League show up, then they can stop the villains. And they do defeat them pretty quickly and easily, I would say. Well, I mean, you say that, but on the next page, Piledriver punches Wonder Woman and Barda into the White House. I mean, I assume that's because they they let him. I mean, <laughs> like, Piledriver? Like, really? Like, it's not, a, uh, not, not an A-lister, I would say. Yeah. But with, with regards to Batman not being there, Plastic Man then says, well, wouldn't he just get in our way? And and Kyle says, listen to the other new guy. Are you kidding? Who else but Batman is going to explain why the world's gone whack? Um, and as uh, Barda and Wonder Woman, who are invulnerable, uh, poor, poor Dr. Spectre, uh, as they smash through the walls of the White House into the Oval Office, um, we see uh, Barda being erased from existence um but the president isn't too worried because it's president president julian september who who says well i guess you've got this in hand guess i'm lucky the jla came along and the league are very surprised that julian september is the president and oracle messages john on the telepathic link to say look i was just reading about him he's a quantum physicist who discovered what he calls the building blocks of probability and claims he chanced upon a way to manipulate coincidence on a subatomic level but how does that translate into the presidency and john just says we're about to ask forcefully i guess my only question is how if 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 theoretically pj i don't know if this is for certain but if julian september is in some way manipulating luck and probability and is now the president, why are the League... Why can the League tell that that's wrong? Oh, John, you silly goose. You just need to remember that Batman's going to show up soon and explain everything. Oh, of course. No, 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 you're right, you're right. Um, and Superman, you know, very politely points out that uh, this is crazy, everything's wrong, and you need to come with us, sir. And uh, Julian September says, nope, not possible. You shouldn't know. Behold, the engine of chance. With it at my side, probability is always in my favour. Let me show you at my command the odds of an earthquake. Earthquake. Not that an earthquake isn't a thing, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the odds of an earthquake ripping through Washington's bedrock have suddenly become better than even. And an earthquake rips through Washington's bedrock. But it's okay. Look, 
Dr. Spectre is there and he's fine. You don't have to oh, worry about him anymore. No, his arms are wide, PJ. He could be in agony. He could be just going, oh, my bones. All oh, my I bones. I he was just uh, reaching out for a hug. Yeah, he wants to hug a doctor, PJ, because <laughs> his rib cage just exploded out of the roof of his head for crying out loud. Um, And also... You know, I know like when you become a villain, it's very easy to end up monologuing. Um, I also feel you start using the word behold a lot. Hey, if I were a supervillain, I would be beholding everything. Every just, sentence. Behold! I just feel the moment you say behold, you're basically already doomed. <laughs> just putting it out there. Um, so, yes, yeah, so um, Oracle being, you know, very quick on the draw, basically points out that Look, it's him. He is he's he's manipulating the probability field of the universe and is causing global catastrophes like you would not believe. Um the Sudan has gone dry. Uh, a tsunami uh has uh just swamped Alabama for the first time in history, and seven of Tokyo's tallest skyscrapers have burst into flame. Now, this uh, this panel here where you see one of Tokyo's skyscrapers bursting into flame, I just want to mention this because Porter has drawn a building that I do recognise as having the same shape uh, as a particular building in Tokyo. Oh. This building, uh, I believe, is sort of the central tax office for Japan. So it's where the government saw their tax stuff happens. And the reason I know this oh, I think is I know. because <laughs> this building was shown to be destroyed in the 1991 film Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah during the fight between the two title monsters. And it is the only time in the history of the Godzilla franchise where the monsters destroyed a building and the audience cheered. <laughs> now, um, listeners, you should tune into um PJ's uh, second uh, podcast, uh, the God Cask. No, sorry. Uh, the uh, the Godzilla Cask. Uh, Podzilla. Because, the Godzilla Cask because no, Podzilla. Podzilla. God, sorry, I misheard. But Podzilla. <laughs> that's really good. Um, yeah, because yeah, if there's one thing you know better than JLA, it's Godzilla movies. Well, I do know them quite well, but that's one of the few facts that stayed in my head from a Godzilla documentary I watched many years ago. Um. But yeah, so as all of Japan's uh, kind of inland revenue burns, uh, all the tax records, uh, thus forcing probably every self-employed person to resubmit their documents. So thanks a bunch, Julian September. <laughs> um, the League uh, try to reason with him uh, as he goes full on villain and holds up the engine of Chanks, which is just kind of screaming CGI Kirby crackle. Yeah, and he says, uh, all my life I've been unlucky, no more. And Plastic Man says, lucky? Seven bad guys showed up to smush you. To which Julian September says, and the JLA arrived to save me. Don't you see? It'll all benefit me. As Kyle does manage to finally encase all seven villains in a big green cube outside. And uh, Jean uh, tries to use his Martian vision to um, presumably decapitate uh, Julian <laughs> September. Um but mercifully, uh, a piece of uh, debris falls and hits the blast, which is very lucky. Um, and I do like, it's a small detail, but in the few times we've seen Zhong's Martian vision, um, it does have quite a distinctive little 
bulge uh, to the beam like before it mm. comes out, which I like. It just makes it seem a little different to Supermag's heat vision. It's like a little build-up of power, isn't it, before the beam itself fires, which, uh, yeah, I like too. Um, yeah, and uh, September, just full-on full on screaming now. It's just like, you can't take me down. I am Fortune's child. And then we get a close-up of the engine of chance as a tiny little bat-shaped dart flies into it, attached to a black line. Could be anyone, PJ. Could be. Literally anyone. Um, And to which we see Batman um, with Smashing a... through a window. Uh, Yeah, with a... Uh, I don't know how to describe it. Like a kind of grapple gun uh, crossed with a taser sort of yeah. thing. Um, yeah. who Who basically fries Julian September alive, killing him instantly. And As then, is Batman's way. <laughs> no, he's fine. Except he's he fine. then fades out of existence. Yes, and uh, also the engine of Chanks has been shattered. So, hmm. And, uh, September says, where's the luck in this? No matter, you won't catch me with the engine shattered. Odds are I'm not even here. And um, Kyle... You know, of course, we always knew that Batman would save the day, as he always does, and says, um, you know, hey, what uh, what took you so long, Batman? To which Batman says, well, the teleporter control kept malfunctioning, the seven key kept jamming. Hmm. And then Wally says, well, that was quick. Uh, track September, jail him, end of problem. About time we had an easy case. Now, where's the president? And the president steps out. And you know things aren't right, because the president is a lady. <gasps> Dun, 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 dun. Shock horror, this could never be. This could certainly never be in, in our world. Um, and the JLA all just look shocked and horrified. Most of them do. Kyle looks at Wally and says, about time we had an easy case. Um, so, wah, wah. Um, <laughs> we, we cut to the roof of a building where the JLA are uh, regrouping to compare notes and uh, Batman says um, well it turns out it's all kind of it's all screwed isn't it because now that the engine of Chanks is kind of broken the laws of probability are breaking down before our eyes and Wonder Woman says we thought it was the engine of chance but that's shattered crisis is still building and Superman points out you know it's was confined to the present but now it's stretching into the past someone else won the presidency other historical improbabilities are occurring faster and faster. It can only get worse. And Flash says, well, how much worse? Columbus never found America worse? And we briefly see that uh, the uh, American flag outside a building has been changed to the Confederate flag. Because reality yeah. is, is reworking itself. And you know this is a work of fiction, PJ, because we would never, we would never see the Confederate flag flown inside a government building. Yeah, imagine that. Imagine that. Wow, something must really be out of whack in the world. <laughs> Meanwhile, Batman's taking notes. He's written down Snake River, Seventh Floor, Jumbo Jets. And Jean says, well, think deeper than that. What if the Big Bang never happened? And then Plastic Man has to one-up him and says, suppose Claudia Schiffer never married David Copperfield. And, um, you know, Kyle picks up the thread and is basically like, uh, oh, so maybe we're all being retroactively erased. That must have been what happened to Barda. 
Any second now, we could vanish. Um, what if the lightning that turned Wally into the Flash never struck? Or somebody else got the Green Lantern ring? Um, of course, that does raise a question, PJ. Does Kyle know Wally's origin story? I assume they're yeah. better friends now and he's told him. Well, I think because Wally's identity is public, I think uh... everyone, I think it's just public knowledge how he got his powers. I do keep forgetting that. Yeah, it's because he still wears a mask, even though his identity's public. But I mean, he's got to keep the wind out of his hair. Presumably. Exactly, exactly. And then um, Kyle says, so yeah, if someone else could have gotten the Green Lantern ring, September's behind it all. And Batman says, well, no, he's not. Barda's disappearance surprised him. Uh, yeah, and, um, and Wally starts pacing at super speed, but points out that um, the JLA is screwed if Batman's not around to explain things. If this isn't September's fault, how big a coincidence is it? And uh, Batman's like, okay, it's more than a coincidence. We need to be more observant. Uh, our, our ranks have been whittled down to seven members. Mm. So here we go. Here's, here's a here cool Batman go. thing. Plastic Man takes the shape of a giant seven. And Batman says, worldwide, the number seven is coming into play with alarming frequency. Plastic Man, you encountered Aquaman at Snake River. And then he says, or more precisely, Seven Devils Canyon. As Plastic Man turns himself into an exclamation point and says, oh, good one. Of course, Batman, um, there was seven, something seven related going on with the lift. Uh, the, the guy's bomb was stopped at seven, I want to say. Yep, that lots of sevens. He even says Julian September is a seven of sorts. Julian suggests July, the seventh month, while September was the seventh cycle of the ancient Roman calendar. It's called synchronicity. Well, and, and in my defence, PJ, because when I was thinking like Julian September, is that a pun? I was thinking like, are you meant to read it like July in September? No. And I was kind of thinking like, is that a saying? That kind of sounds like a saying. The, 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 the rhyme though, 30 days have whatever. I can never remember exactly how it goes, but I'm sure it's July and September, isn't it? Yeah, um... Anyway, Batman's on it. Batman's smarter than me. <laughs> so so Batman explains synchronicity to the League and they ask, what does it mean? He says, well, it means for starters there'll be no more disappearances if my theory holds we're stable at seven members. And then Plastic Man says theory and Flash just says, look, see what I mean? He always has all the answers, don't know what he'd do without him. So Batman continues. He says, Psychologist Carl Jung claimed synchronicity was a psychic memorandum, a reminder that the universe has an underlying order. I'm not sure I buy into that, but I do accept that fate or chance or the universe is using synchronicity to tell us something critical about what September has done and what has to be put right. The sevens are a message, and they mean... And then Batman winks out of existence. And... The remaining six members of the League look at the spot where he stood and Superman just goes, Batman? Question mark. And then he goes, next issue, things get worse. (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) Wow. So PJ, there we are. I feel like that went quick. I feel like we kind of breezed through that one. It's it's one of those issues where a lot happens, but it all happens very quickly. So you just sort of get through it very quickly. And um, I mean, PJ. I mean, obviously, we're going to talk about how we feel about it. But um, 
this was your your very first modern issue of JLA. Um, I'm guessing it holds quite a special place in your heart. It does. I really, when I read this issue, really wanted to know what happened next. And as you say, I couldn't really just go up and look it up on the internet. So I think it was only about seven or eight months later I managed to track down the second issue, the second part of the story, and, and actually finish it. Mm. So, uh, but yeah, it, I the first time I read it, it really left me wanting more. And it was a huge deal for me, this issue, because as well as being my first issue of JLA... It was my first real encounter with Electric Blue Superman. It was my first proper introduction to Plastic Man. Oh, true. Um, So, yeah, it was a big deal to me, this issue, when I first read it. And and so it, you know, maintains a special place for me in in my heart, I guess, (laughs) and my love for JLA. And it's weird because it's also, it's such a strange place for you to have randomly joined the series as well. Oh, yeah. Because, um, yeah, it's got all these hallmarks that kind of Morrison introduced, but obviously not being a Morrison issue. And, again, we've got Electric Blue Superman, but it's not really like a kind of quintessential Electric Blue Superman moment. You know, um, obviously he does a couple of fun things here, but, yeah, it's not... You know, you, you had the joy of going on to discover the other moments from the series. Yeah, Definitely, and and obviously when I went back as well and started from then New World Order and, and read through, sort of bits of it made more sense to me who Plastic Man was and his role within the League. Why I didn't understand why Huntress was on the League. I'd read a lot of Batman at this point, but say I hadn't read much JLA, so Huntress being a League member was a surprise to me, and obviously then going back and finding that as well. It is something, one of the things I think is weird about this issue is that you've just had two issues of Morrison setting up the team, and then Wade comes <laughs> in next issue and gets rid of half of them again. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. And I wonder how, um, you know, and I, I, I don't mean this as a slight at all, because, you know, I, if I was in this situation, I probably would have done the same. But having a team with like 14 people on it, uh, that's large. Like, that's a lot, even by, you know, Avengers scandags. Uh So, I don't know, it'd be, it'd be hard to find something meaningful for them all to do. And it's, it's stuff Morrison would do, like, down the line. You know, would kind of, like, split the team off into little groups or have, like, novel kind of pairings. But, yeah, seven is a much more uh, manageable number, really. Well, it's we've we've got Mark Wade for four issues now in total, two two part stories. But the next one as well only features around half the team, although different. Some of the same, some are different as well. Originally, I wondered maybe if because we've basically got this two parter, then another Wade two parter, then a Morrison two parter before we sort of then get into another bigger story. Part of me originally wondered if maybe they were written sort of out of sequence they were written those six issues so they could be in any order really those those six mm. those three stories but that doesn't work at all because there is a major difference between one of the characters <laughs> in this story and the next one so that is true but they are more kind of like self-contained i yeah. want to say yeah little kind of pocket stories um yeah completely do you feel cuz one of my thoughts about this is morrison in doing such amazing kind of legwork to set up this new series, set up a new status quo, and maybe a new way of telling superhero stories. 
you know, really kind of up the ante. Do you feel that this is Wade doing a Morrison? Yes. Do you? Do you? Feel, I really do. Yeah. I think, I, yeah. Mark Wade is a very, very good writer. I'm a big fan of his mm-hmm. uh, his work. Um, I feel like he's he's in sort of the same camp as Kurt Busiek, where yeah. he has this encyclopedic knowledge of continuity. He knows the characters very well, and he's able to tap into both of those things as and when he wants and needs to 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 craft stories that fit well with the universe. But he's also fairly chameleonic in that he's obviously been reading what Morrison has been doing on JLA prior to this. He knows that his fill-in issues are coming in the middle of Morrison's run, so what he does needs to feel of a piece with them. And like when I first read these two issues, it was at a time in comics where I wasn't, you know, I was a teenager, so I wasn't really paying attention so much to the credits and who was actually mm. doing what. I just read the comics. So I don't think when I first read these two issues and then went on to read New World Order that at first I necessarily realised they were different writers. I think, um, yeah, because again, similarly, I'm a big fan of of Mark Wade, and I've, I actually have a pleasure of meeting him when uh, way back in 2008 at the Calgary Comic Con in Canada. <laughs> is when I was living in Canada, and um, he was he was he came across as such a kind of genuine, helpful guy. Like he was he was a nice guy. Like really, yeah, got a lot lot of admiration for him. And um, Kingdom Come is an astounding piece of work. Yes, yeah. I met him at Thought Bubble a few years ago, and I'm pretty sure he's signed my copy of Kingdom Come, but it's not close to be at the moment. So I know I got something signed by him. I think it might have been Kingdom Come, but I need to double-check that. It'd be, it'd be fascinating to know, because um, I think... Because uh, Mark... And it's interesting that you compared Mark Wade to Kurt Busiek, because... That's, that's very, very askew, because I do see them as kind of like of a type, of a... Mm. They're they're both um, I think of a similar age. I know Wade is is a little older than Morrison, and particularly at this point in time, uh, Morrison was a bit more of like um, like uh, what's it the uh, the enfant terrible like mm. uh, made made their name in the in the kind of Vertigo British Invasion Doom Patrol Animal Man. Uh, all these weird genre-bending kind of takes on superheroes, then came across to the mainstream with uh, JLA. Really, this was and this new attitude, like turning it all on its head, like this big kind of bombastic storytelling. And I know that Morrison and Wade are good friends. Yeah, they are. Yeah, and and it's, it must be so interesting because you know Wade was slightly more established, kind of like the slightly older guard, not by much. But I just find it interesting that they were such good friends and then kind of both working on the same series. And as you said, Wade was writing Flash at the same time and Morrison popping over to that series. And, and just, yeah, again, to, to have been a fly on the wall, it must have been an interesting situation, you know, for Wade to essentially step in and take over the story and to kind of, you know, tell a story in the style of Morrison. Yeah, I think certainly the whole Julian September quantum probability and and the the universe trying to correct it by having the league just, just remember and throwing these sevens it feels very Morrison. It's a very mm. Morrison 
big idea thing and when you then realize oh no he's a different guy and, and actually it's it, this is mark wade and it it is i think again it, it shows how versatile mark wade can be as a writer if you compare this to what he does with JLA when he takes over the book after Morrison is quite different. And his runs on Captain America and Flash and Fantastic Four are all very different from each other, but all very, you know, they're among the things I think of as quintessential superhero comics. Or um, uh, Daredevil as a more yes. recent one as well. Very good. Very good as well. Um, yeah, it's interesting because I think, um, I-, I think for me, uh, perfectly, perfectly fun issue. And I, but I think for me, it 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 doesn't quite have, it doesn't quite have that Morrison edge, and I kind of say that not to be kind of like dismissive because again, massive fan of Wade, but um, but for me, I can kind of there's just something I think I don't know if it's for dialogue or the pacing, but there's just something where it's like this is still good, but it isn't it isn't Morrison in in a way, and I think um. For me, the JLA series felt so kind of just a thing apart, like just something so kind of like transcendentally weird. But it's interesting, like this is this story feels more like it's in the DC universe, if that makes sense. Hmm. I don't know what you mean. Yeah, like I, I don't think it's just like the way Wade kind of handles the characters. They feel, I don't know, like, I don't know. I really don't know what to say. Like, I like it. I do like it. But it. It is it is different, but not bad. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It, I don't. I don't really know where, like you say, where to put my finger on it because the characters feel right to me. Wade obviously knows the characters, knows how to write them. You know, he's he's written Superman so many times and has written some of the definitive Superman stories. Uh, it's clearly he gets Kyle, and obviously no one knows what he West quite like Mark Wade does. Um, is Batman is absolutely perfect. I think that sequence with Bruce Wayne in the lift is is superb. But yeah, it it feel it does something about it feels different to how Morrison writes them. But it's difficult to actually put your finger on what that is. Well, I think I think an interesting one is it's the uh, as an example the the call it a joke. It's it's not a joke, but you've got the setup and the payoff. So you have the setup being that Batman knows everything, always solves all their problems, and he's going to do it again. The payoff being, oh, no, wait, pull the rug out from under you. He's He's been disappeared as well. And I feel like um, uh, kind of Wade, to, to, to really drive that home in the reader, kind of cements that a few times. Like I think, hmm. um, well, Wally says it, I think Kyle says it. Yeah. To the point where they're almost kind of like expressly saying, like, oh, don't worry, Batman's going to solve this. Like, yeah, Kyle going, are you kidding? Who else but Batman is going to explain this? Uh, Wally saying, you know, QC that, you know, if you're not around to explain things, we're screwed. Like, I feel like it's, 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 it's a setup to the joke that is really, really, really setting it up to, to do that kind of twist at the end. And also I just feel... having Batman be the one that actually destroys September's device. Yes. Yes, indeed. And I think it's just... I think that's that's a good example to me of how Wade and Morrison would approach a joke 
it's not a joke. I just can't think of a better way of putting it. Approach that that joke differently, if that makes sense. Like it's yeah. almost like a kind of like a, a slight wink to the audience. Like, oh, you know, here's the thing. You know, this is coming. Oh, yeah, here's the joke. And then Wade absolutely makes sure that you get you get it when it hits. And I think Morrison uh, Morrison's way of doing things is to um, not give you that kind of setup. You know, you might be a bit kind of confused at the end, but then if you go back and read it, you might go, ah, like I think I saw where that was. I, I, I think now I see it. That might be it. It's. I think the characters feel the same. Mm. It might just be the way Wade structures the script and the plot that's different. Because obviously, it's it's still Howard Porter drawing as well and drawing amazingly. I love that. <laughs> you know, I think <laughs> Porter knocks it out of the park on this issue again. But I, I think it is just the 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 actual physical structure of the plot and and how Wade moves through it. Is is what might well be different to how it was if Morrison were telling the same story. There's a there, I, again maybe somebody with a more more of a literary trained background would be able to say the correct term for it. But I, I do wonder. It's not sentimentalism the right word. I wonder if it's kind of like nostalgic or something. But I, I and I, this is why I, I thought it's interesting that you put Wade in the same camp as as Busick because I think they have a particular style of writing, which is. I think Morrison was was more willing to kind of tear up the rule book, whereas I think both Wade and Busick do their craft really, really well, if mm. that makes sense. But then you know the flip side would be um, someone like Claremont, who I think didn't adapt so well to the changing times because while they had a formula Claremont couldn't update it quite as much if that makes sense I think with Wade and Busick and particularly I'm thinking of Busick's Avengers run when I when I say this but I, I can think of examples where they've both done it they will come onto a book and they will write and craft a really good run on that book but during that run they will also use it to get rid of or fix dangling continuity problems Mm. if you look at Busick's (laughs) Avengers run he fixes so many continuity issues while also telling some damn good stories in that oh my god yeah um both Kang the Conqueror for example yeah exactly they both know the continuity so well and can come up with creative ways of telling stories within it that also make sense of it but without having the continuity be the reason for the story they're they're telling a good story it's not like someone who's coming in and just telling continuity Mm. oh no agreed agreed and again i cannot stress this enough i do not mean this to be dismissive in any way of mark wake's work which i am a big fan of i think it's just um to be such a kind of Morrison snob like myself, I guess. <laughs> and this series was such an embarrassment of riches that to go from like pure Morrison weirdness to like um, just a really good story by Mark Wade. I'm like, oh, okay, it's not quite Morrison. I'm enjoying this, but I look forward to Morrison getting back, if that but makes maybe, sense. Maybe that's the thing. Morrison is more experimental, and that comes through in his writing, but that means sometimes you get something like Final Crisis mm, or oh, his yeah. current Green Lantern run or something where it just does not work. It just doesn't land, yeah. Yeah, so he'll try new, new different approaches, but it doesn't always make for a good story. Whereas, again, I don't want to say this 
as if because it sounds like a negative, but it's not. Busick and Wade are a solid, safe pair of hands. They will just tell you a really good, solid superhero story, and without they won't reinvent the wheel, but they will reshape it slightly, maybe into something interesting yeah, and because, dynamic. Because it's um, you know Morrison is seen as such a endlessly creative force. Uh, and and one of the criticisms is often levelled at, at Morrison, rightly or wrongly, you know, for you for the listener to decide is sometimes they put creativity over structure, and you know, and sometimes it lands and sometimes it doesn't. Final Crisis being a good a good example of it not quite mm-hmm. landing, um, uh, and kind of lost my train of thought there. <laughs> I was kind of <laughs> I was building up to a conclusion and it went. It's clearly not as important. Um, but yeah, but there's no crime in just telling a good story. Like it doesn't always have to be innovative, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But something I think Morrison has in common with both Wade and Busick as well, though, is they are all artists, writers. They know how to work well with their artists and, Mm. and work as a team. Like Wade had huge runs on both Flash and Fantastic Four with the, the late great Mike Waringo, both those runs are stunning and that's because it's a writer and artist working together to craft something amazing and that's what Morrison's done with both Howard Porter and Frank Quietly at various times as well and what Busick's done with uh, with with George Perez on Avengers oh, yeah. and Just numerous artists actually these kind of but, dream teams yeah yeah so I, I think you these are all three of them are writers who know how to work with an artist rather than demanding something of an artist well, and and it's interesting because here, you know, here we are, you know, looking at a a series, a story in in this in this run which uh, was not written by Morrison, uh, and then maybe we compare that with um, uh, Secret Files and Origins two, which we you know discussed a few issues back, mm. um, which again another story by a different uh, different team, slap bang in the middle of a Morrison run, and yeah, the difference there was striking. You know, so it's clearly, you know, it's not necessarily just because it's not Morrison. I think whoever you bring in to tell that story matters a lot as well. I think that's one of those, an example of what we were talking about a couple of minutes ago, isn't it? That JLA Secret Files and Origins 2 is continuity as story rather than being continuity serving the story. It was purely a how did this team get together? Let's show that without thinking about actually telling a story showing us that. That is that's actually profound, PJ. No, ge- genuinely, I hadn't quite seen it that way. But you're right. Yeah, that story is pure functionality. It mm. doesn't. It was unnecessary. We didn't need to know that the team were ex- existed. The fact that they do is enough. Yeah. Yeah. You may. Have, you've, I think you've hit upon something quite profound there, PJ. <laughs> it very occasionally that's going. It, it, it does happen <laughs> occasionally. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Like altogether, a fun, a fun story, and I guess kind of com- continuing in the vein of of what the JLA could be nowadays, which I think we've seen continue even to the present day, where the JLA are less, say, let's stop a bank robbery or let's stop a, even let's stop like a, a single criminal genius. They have become more of a threat beyond, you know, we combat threats beyond human comprehension like mm-hmm. a- alien civilizations or 
I don't know, um, a city in a in a in a drop of rain, that sort of thing. You know, <laughs> real weird conceptual shit, for lack of a better word. Yeah, definitely. And I'm a big fan. Me too. Is, is there anything left to say, PJ, about this issue? Uh, no. Just that you know, as ever, I'm very excited to get on to the next one. Yeah, in- indeed. Um, also, the, be- the next issue is a swan song. If if you're reading along with us and going for the first time, I'm not going to say what for, but uh, next issue is the final appearance of someone or something. <laughs> so, uh, savour it. Something too beautiful for this world, PJ. <laughs> <laughs> Gone but not forgotten. It is, of course, Julian September. Um, <laughs> and on that note, I guess it falls upon me to, as ever, thank Gav Mitchell for our absolutely incredible cover art. And Elliot Red for our superb theme tune, Justice. Uh, is there anything you'd like to shout about, PJ? Uh, it's sunny. I'm going to go for a walk. Uh, what about another, another podcast, PJ? Oh, yeah. You yeah. can also catch my other podcast, The Measure of a Fan, in which myself, Elliot Red, who I've already mentioned, and the comedian Matt Troy go through all of Star Trek chronologically. And we're getting towards the end of the first season of Enterprise now. Elliot has never seen Star Trek. Matt and I are big fans. And uh, the episodes aren't very good at the moment, but we're having fun. <laughs> you can find that on all good podcast receptacles. Amazing. Um, but yeah, it is very sunny, and I'm getting hungry. Um, and I've got some leftover pizza, so... Hang on, you've got to shout about your other podcast too. Oh, yeah, sorry, no. I, I, I do a podcast called A Show Called Hate, uh, where every week myself... My good friend Chris Ray and uh, PJ and I's mutual friend Nick Angel, comic book artist and writer. We um, every week we bring a topic of hate and a topic of love to the table, and we just have stupid discussions about it. And don't expect greater meaning or any kind of learning or growth, but hopefully it's a lot of fun. Check out the the animations that have been done for it as well, because those are amazing. I love those. They are uh, kudos to uh, kudos to Harry. AKA Deep Blue Ink, because they are absolutely astounding. Yeah, and you can find them uh, wherever you enjoy podcasts. Um, speaking of enjoyment, if you enjoy hearing PJ and I ramble on about all kinds of things, uh, you can find us on the social medias, and our handles are in the episode description. Yes, and they are. Yes, they are. Uh, PJ, given that this issue uh, meant so much to you, and just this once, would you do us the honours and sign off the episode? Of course. I'm going to end this episode in the only way I can. And that way is... That was me doing a fading out of existence joke there, but it didn't really work in the audio medium, so just go with it. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>